With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, in honor of President's Day, we are going to be ranking every U.S. president based on how likely it was that they mewed, starting with Warren G. Harding. Logan, what would your rating for him be? Logan I don't think Warren G. I don't think Warren G. Harden knew what mewing was. I'm gonna keep it a buck. L take. I fear he clearly mewed because he mogs almost every other president. Bro was strapping with a strong jawline. I don't know what that means, man. Mewing. Well, I know Pablo. Pablo intricately described what mew. What is a mog? Mogging, Logan, is when effectively you one-up everybody else in the room with your looks. So let's say you're in a room and I walk in. What I've done is I've mogged you. Uh, I, yeah. I always thought you were kind of beat, man. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, clearly, your eyes aren't very good. Okay, we're actually going to be doing a mailbag today. And uh, one of the questions actually is about how how did Carson get to be such a cutie patootie somebody well, I also, on Twitter. I also wrote down for my answer there, I always thought Carson was pretty beat, man. Yeah, well, Joel asks, <laughs> and the answer is hours upon hours of mewing. We're also going to talk some basketball, though, and a little bit of football. We mostly got NBA questions today, and a few of you guys asked us about the Cavs. Lots of intrigue around the Cavs, who, of course, have won 18 of their last 20 games. We're going to pick Michael's question here, who asks, are the Cavs contenders, or does the lack of a true top five player limit their championship ceiling? I want to expand on that last question about Carson. You guys, I actually lived okay. with Carson for a long time, dude, for hours on hours. You guys think he's playing. Like, he would sit there. I'd be like, Carson, like, you want me to cook up dinner, man? Are you hungry? And then he'd go. Yeah. Dude, mewing for hours on hours, bro. I ridiculous. indeed mewing. A lot of people don't realize. Dude, back freshman year of college, man. Carson was on the wave, man. He invented it. They called me Mewtwo. <laughs> um... I don't think the Cavaliers are real contenders for a few reasons, and, and this recent stretch has been really encouraging. I think what we've seen is two things. If they're going to stick with this current rotation and their current crop of franchise building blocks, I think one thing is abundantly clear, that they have to stagger their minutes and they have to have 
they have to mix up their rotation. Another thing is abundantly clear to me, and that's that they need they need more shooting and spacing on the wings. Like you just amplify the the skill sets of a guy like Donovan Mitchell, of a guy like Darius Garland, uh, of your big men on the floor. When there are guys who can legitimately knock down shots, you think about their playoff rotation last year. You know, trotting out Isaac Okoro in a lineup with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really nice like Cleve I mean like it's it's encouraging for Cleveland that they've had a stretch like this considering how disappointing last season's playoff run was that being said it also says to me that this current crop of your stars doesn't really fully complement each other and that's ultimately going to be something that I think holds this team back I just don't think there's a ton of continuity between the starting five and your five best players and I think there's a lack of competent three and D wings down the roster uh and that's something that's going to hold the team back uh I think they found a formula that works to an extent. You know, they found a way to win games and that staggering these minutes and your players and uh, using different lineups works, adding more spacing works. But I don't have a ton of faith in it working in a playoff setting because you want your best players out there on the floor. And if you're going to play Garland, Mitchell, Mobley, and Allen in closing minutes, I just think that's a lineup that just does not really work together. So... Uh, no, I don't think the Cavaliers are real contenders, although this stretch is is really, really impressive. I mean, this is something that's really freaking hard to do. Yeah, it's always awesome to win this many regular season games, and especially when you consider all that they've had to deal with. Like, for more than half of this stretch, they've been without both Garland and Mobley. They're back now. They've been back for the last 10-ish games, but they were reeling off wins when it was just Mitchell and Allen out there, and Mitchell has played at an incredibly high level this regular season, has done some of the best playmaking that we've seen from him, has been consistently, uh, especially once the Cavs turn things around, engaged defensively. I do want to give some context just to like this insane run. They have had a very light schedule. They're 4-2 and two against teams who are 500 or better in this 20-game stretch. But still, they're beating good teams and they are running through bad teams. To me... I just don't think I can be all that moved by regular season results from this Cleveland Cavaliers team because lest we forget last year, they were second in all of basketball in net rating and they were ninth in offensive rating. They were number one in defensive rating. They were better than their record would indicate in the regular season. And then in the playoffs, we saw all of these really glaring issues cost them and they couldn't even really hang with the Knicks in a first round series despite the fact that Julius Randle was, like, god-awful. Like, 14 points per game on, what was he, maybe 30% from the field? Just vintage stuff from him. And still, like, they were soundly outplayed in that series. And when I look at their issues, I just don't think that they fundamentally solved them. I do think that they've improved on the wings. I think that what you get from Max Struess is better than what they had last year. Because although he hasn't had a great shooting season... You're getting more floor spacing. You're getting a guy who's capable of putting the ball on the floor and playmaking, who's going to bring you more grit defensively than, say, a Karis Levert, and it's just going to fit more easily into a primarily off-ball role. So they've improved there, but the fundamental issue is still a lack of high-end two-way wings and trotting out these unskilled front court two big looks because that's what got them exposed against the Knicks, basically. Teams were able to devote so much defensive attention to their guards, and that forced them to settle for a lot of tough pull-up jumpers, took the offense out of rhythm, the guards weren't efficient, things just spiraled for them. And although these improvements on the wings maybe make them a little bit better, 
it doesn't fundamentally change that and the East around them has gotten better. And to Michael's question specifically, does the lack of a true top five player limit their championship ceiling? That is part of it. I think that there's issues beyond like who is their number one guy. But Donovan Mitchell, as awesome as he has been in this regular season stretch, and he has been phenomenal, I do still worry about him super consistently maintaining the level that they would need. We've seen him have some flamethrower runs before in Utah back in 2020 and in 2021 as well. But you also see the stretches where he becomes very, very shoot first. He becomes very specifically reliant on the pull-up threes. He can be erratic there, and he can hurt team offense as a result. So... Yeah, they're a little bit better than last year, but until, in my opinion, Evan Mobley matures to the point where they can confidently play him at the five and you move off of Jared Allen, like that has to be the formula to them actually unlocking a different ceiling. Because when I go matchup to matchup, I don't like how they match up against the Knicks because in that series, despite having these two big looks, they got bodied in terms of physicality and on the glass. The Knicks are even bigger on the front line. They're an even more dominant rebounding team this year. The one weakness, glaring weakness, besides Randall's falloff, which again, you can't get a worse version of Julius Randall than you already got and lost to. The other issue they had was a real lack of spot-up shooting on the wings, where now they're dynamic with Dante DiVincenzo and with OG Ananobi. They're a better defensive team with OG in there. Jalen Brunson is maybe even better than he was last year. Like, I just don't see that. And then the Bucks, I think, have that more reliable offensive duo the more explosive offense the Celtics are just in a different talent level in terms of their overall basketball team and I think that again there's weaknesses that can be attacked with this Cavs team the lack of high-end offensive skill in the front court putting out these two small guard looks a team like Boston has so many big athletic ball handlers they're going to be able to hunt Mitchell and Garland so to me they're still not contenders but what they're doing in the regular season is awesome we did see them have an awesome regular season last year though yeah, I think it is going to be matchup dependent, you know, who they draw in the first round. But if I had to predict how Cleveland's season ends, it's a first round exit. And then once again, I think that Cleveland has a lot of questions to answer in this offseason about what they're going to do. Because I think there are two, well, there's three weaknesses in the starting lineup, right? Well, you have two re major redundancies with both groups of your star guys in the backcourt and in the frontcourt. You know, they're stylistically very similar players. Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland are both, you know, defensive, uh, you know, they lack defensively. And then Jared Allen and Evan Mobley both lack offensively. So there's some redundancies there. And then I just think you got to finally make the decision and make that move. And, I mean, the encouraging thing about this is that I think a lot of teams would be interested in acquiring a guy like Jared Allen. And I think you can go out and get a really complimentary 3 and D wing. And then go out and get some other assets that you think work alongside these guys. Some more perimeter defenders. Some more, more 3 and D guys, really. Like, if they can get two or three competent 3 and D guys for this rotation, another really big, mauler, big body type who's going to anchor the glass off the bench on the low block, you know, get some size off the bench. I don't think Cleveland's that far away. You know what I mean? They're very talented at the top. It's really about filling out the rest of this rotation with complementary guys who do little things that can amplify your star players. So... I don't think this is the year for Cleveland, but I think if they do a lot this offseason, something could materialize for next season where they are primed to make a playoff push. Yeah, they're still in a very good spot when you consider that they have four quote-unquote star-level talents. Mobley needs to progress more offensively, and Jaron Allen, he is a one-time all-star. I don't know if I would consistently consider him on that level. And that those guys are young, and Donovan Mitchell's 27, Garland's 24, 
Mobley is 22. But to me, if they want to take the leap to true contender status, it's probably going to have to be moving off of Allen so you can have more perimeter skill offensively. I will say, I don't think the most likely outcome for them is a first-round exit because they're winning a lot of games. And if they have that two-seed and you draw the Pacers or you draw the Magic, I would be pretty confident with them in either of those matchups. The concerning first-round draw could be the Heat because the Heat have playoff voodoo and they have their star duo and they have an improved set of wings. But I think that they're a second-round exit, ultimately. It's really the Celtics, the Bucks, and the Knicks who I still have pretty concretely above them in a playoff setting. Okay, Natalie asks, of the teams that are most likely going to hold up to the 20, uh, 40 wins before 20 losses rule, the Cavs, Celtics, T-Wolves, Thunder, and Clippers, who are the pretenders and contenders, and could it be possible that this year's finals winner comes from outside this group? Not only do I think it's possible, I, I think it's probably likely. I mean, the team that I have the most faith in hoisting the championship at the end of this season is still the Denver Nuggets. Uh, I think the Denver Nuggets have taken their foot off the gas pedal a little bit. This isn't something that's foreign yeah. to defending champions, right? Uh, it's regular season. You know, the Nuggets are going to turn it up when it comes playoff time. And I think there are distinct advantages that Denver has. They're really freaking big, they're physical, they're athletic. Uh, those are good advantages, but they also have a top-tier duo in Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray that are just going to manufacture points and manufacture offense at the end of games. I mean, with what they have done over the past few seasons, I think it's kind of inarguable. Like, there's nobody better at closing games out. When it comes down to Jamal and Jokic, I trust those guys to make big shots to create. I trust the continuity of this team to, to play great defense. They're just a perfect fitting puzzle right now, and so I, I wouldn't bet against anybody else other than Denver right now. Out of that group... I think the two contenders are the Celtics and the Clippers. I think the Celtics are one of the most talented starting fives in basketball. And with what we've seen in the Clippers, it's really encouraging. They've got a lot of firepower at the top. And then defensively, you've got two great defensive wings in Kawhi and PG. They make up for Harden's shortcomings defensively. And they are just a well-oiled machine, man. Like, they, they, they play really well together. And the Clippers have had the luxury of trading for Harden at the start of the season where they can build that chemistry and continuity. It was rough. I said that I counted the Clippers out, man. Carson held to faith, and shout out to you, man. Uh, the well, Clippers figured it out. I didn't exactly uh, nail it. I thought they were going to be, like, the fifth best team in the West. I just didn't true. sell all my stock after uh -huh. a rough start, but I did not think they would be this good. Yeah, they've exceeded a lot of expectations, so I think the Clippers are legit, and I can see them, you know, making a Western Conference Finals run or making that push. The reason, and we've hampered on this for a while about the Timberwolves and the Thunder, we just talked about the Cavs. I think the Cavs have too many... Uh, just fundamental roster uh, issues to, to, to make it through. I, I'm really scarred by what we saw in last year's playoffs. It's really hard for me to buy in on Cleveland after what we saw in their shortcomings last year. For Minnesota and Oklahoma City, it's tough. Uh, we've talked about them a lot. They're very two hot-button teams. They're a lot of fun. Two young teams that have surged up the power rankings out west. Uh, so I'll reiterate a lot of our thoughts about them. Oklahoma City, I think it's slight. They are very young. Uh and that's what I think is going to come back to bite them. I think against a more physical team out West, if that's the Lakers, if that's Minnesota, uh, if that's Denver, you know, if they run into one of these really big teams, I think they're going to get crushed on the glass. I think they're going to get out-physicaled, out-athletic a little bit, and that's going to be their doom. And again, they don't have a whole lot of veteran guys here. Uh, we went on Jason's show. Jason iterated a very good point. You know, it's hard for these young teams to make it through. With Minnesota, I, I do worry about their offensive shortcomings. You're trusting a really young Anthony Edwards to – 
carry your offense through. Ant has played great in playoff settings and in big game scenarios. His jumper's been on. He's exerted a ton of pressure on the rim. He's played well. He's been really efficient. It's just hard for me to imagine Anthony, uh, you know, going over the top and being great and continuing uh, to lead out a great half-court offense through an entirety of a playoff run or a playoff series. It's just a lot on the shoulders of a very young player who isn't as developed in that area. You know, he's not. he just hasn't reached that total control of offensive game the way I, I need. So, you know, I think they're very good teams. I can see them winning a playoff series. I'm not counting them out for that, but in terms of Making a title push, I really don't see it with uh, Oklahoma City, with Minnesota, or with Cleveland. Yeah, so I agree completely in terms of the split here. And I think that you can kind of dial it down to some fundamental criteria that every champion, and that's the standard that we're holding these teams to, really, because I wouldn't necessarily call them pretenders, any of them, but I think the Cavs, the T-Wolves, and the Thunder all have clear red flags when you're talking about holding them to that championship standard first of all if you're not a great team on both sides of the ball if you're not top 10 on both sides of the ball historically that really eliminates you from the title conversation we've seen some exceptions in recent years especially as the regular season has become a bit devalued but particularly when you look at offensive production where effort isn't as much of a factor the Cavs have been on a very good offensive stretch, but they are still on the whole this year, an average offensive team with, again, some clear skill concerns and the lack of like that real upper echelon number one kind of guy. The T-Wolves, you can say a lot of the same things, right? The spacing isn't ideal. Can Ant play up to the level of, say, a Kawhi Leonard or... Nikola Jokic, right? These like absolute best guys in the league for an extended run. They're 17th in offensive rating on the year. The Thunder, uh, that's a very good two-way team, but it comes down to what you mentioned with the slight front court and I think the overall inexperience. It just feels like they can get bullied in some of these matchups. So the Celtics are obviously contenders. Like I think that they're going to win the East. They're one of the best regular season teams that we've seen this century, you could argue. I mean, they could easily be a 65-win team. They're 11th all-time in terms of point differential per game up to this point on the year. And the Clippers just have that formula of three star shot creators, and then they've got good depth. They've got good wings, really elite shooting team. They have that one a physical, high-level rim protector, efficient rim finisher in Zubots. They check a lot of boxes. I still don't view them on Denver's level because they aren't quite as physically imposing and because they are a bit more specifically reliant on pull-up shots falling consistently, and we've seen that bite them in the past. But they're a really, really good basketball team. So I definitely view those two in a tier a little bit above the rest. Now this question I really like from E. coli. If you could change one MVP winner and one finals outcome, what person in series would you change? So I'm going to lob the first one up to Carson. Mm. Uh, Carson did a uh, an extensive yeah. breakdown of Russell Westbrook's MVP victory. A in, school uh, project, a literal school project. 2017. Uh, that's probably my pick too, just because Carson's bit my ear off about that one for uh, the longest time. And so I'm in agreement. I've heard his spiel many times about why James Harden should have won that. But on the inverse, I'll give my answer about the finals question. I have two picks for that one. The first one I go to is 2012, and the only reason I say that is I just think 
the course of NBA history would be changed so much, and I think it's really fascinating and interesting to see what the three-headed monster of Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook would have been able to do, what they would have become if they would have stuck together. You know, the just to see the ripple, the butterfly effect, uh, essentially, of what could have happened with that team if they get a title. Do are all of them still in Oklahoma City? Does James Harden still leave and go out and become an MVP? Does James Harden never reach his ceiling? Do they run it back and win a bunch of titles together? You know, there's just so many what-ifs about if they had gotten that done uh, that changed the course of NBA history, and I think it's really fascinating. The other one that I would choose is 2016. And the only reason I put that as an honorable mention and not as my choice, one, it's a classic NBA Finals. I mean, it's one of the greatest, like, it's etched in history forever. 3-1 comeback, LeBron's block, like, it's just historical memories and moments on the biggest stage of basketball. So I wouldn't want to completely erase that because it's historical, but the only reason I say 2016 and I consider it is I don't think the more talented team won. You know, I, I, I never came away from that finals feeling like the 2016 Cavs were better than the 2016 Warriors. That's why I say that. Traditionally, I enjoy when the best team wins. And traditionally in basketball, in seven-game series, when you have those big sample sizes, right, Super Bowls are not necessarily won by the best team in football every year because it's one-game format. The NCAA tournament is not always won by the best team in college basketball. It's what makes these sports really volatile and fun to watch. In basketball, because we play seven-game series – Traditionally, the best team is going to win, but there's so many weird things that happen in that series. Draymond suspension, Game Seven, you know the Warriors just falling apart, not Bo being able to injury. Uh, Harrison Barnes can't hit a shot for an yeah, entire man. series. Steph throws a ball out of bounds off a of behind the back pass. Sure, sure, we remember it. Hundred uh, percent. And that's the only reason I consider that one is I don't think the better team won in that series, but. It is a classic basketball moment, so I'll go with 2012. I think it would be really interesting to see how the course of NBA history changes uh, if the Thunder end up capturing that first ring. That's a great choice, dude. Mine is 2016, though, and I know that a lot of people disagree with that because it's like the greatest series comeback in NBA history. There's no question, and LeBron played at over a three-game stretch, maybe the highest level that we've seen from anybody ever. So I wouldn't want to take away that moment, but I'm a Warriors fan. So like it was one of the most gut-wrenching things ever. And I remember watching Game 7. I was at, in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, with some of my pals. And then we had to drive home, and it was like a four-hour drive of just silence. And there are so many little what-ifs throughout that series. And the cliche is that like the Warriors and Cavs basically swapped which titles should have been theirs. 2015, the Warriors weren't quite ready as a team. And if Kyrie and K-Love had been healthy, then the Cavs would have won. And then the next year, if you don't have the Draymond suspension and the Bogan injury and Harrison Barnes shooting 30% over an entire series, that maybe the Warriors should have won that one because they were the better team overall. But for me, just on a personal level, that was really, really painful. Outside of that, there's not that much that I would change. And it's interesting because it's like I enjoy the current mythology and history of the NBA so much that I'm kind of like, well, that piece happening is so important to this guy's legacy or that guy's legacy. Maybe, and this is kind of a random one, but no, I don't want to do that. I was going to say 74 have the Bucks beat the Celtics just because... Those Celtics teams were so great, like all the way from 73 to 76. But it's just not as iconic, and it would have been cool to see Kareem get another one in Milwaukee, especially with Oscar, like, a little more over the hill by that point. But then it's like, all right, then does he request the trade to L.A.? 
Maybe eventually, maybe later down the line, maybe it's somewhere else Then we don't get Kareem and Magic. I can't mess it. I can't do the butterfly effect. The only one I can do is 2016. And the other thing, Logan, is that, frankly, I just wish that Kevin Durant had never been a Golden State Warrior if you could give them the 2016 title. And I think that Steph has specifically said that he would trade two rings to get that one 2016 ring. And, you know, that trade works out pretty nicely if you take away the two KD rings. To me, those are just the two most devalued rings in NBA history. It was two years where the league was the least competitive it's ever been because there was this team that was so stacked with talent. And it was done a bit artificially because the piece that puts a 73-win team over the top like the greatest regular season team ever is a top three player in the league acquired through free agency. That to me just wasn't good for the competitive balance of the sport. And to some extent it limited like, all right, how high can these guys legacies climbs? Obviously Steph is still a top 10 player ever. KD's a top 15 player ever. It was probably a net positive, but you're always going to have that hanging over your total ring counts. Well, and the ironic part is what everybody forgets about that 2016 season is that Oklahoma City had Golden State on the ropes. Of course, uh, won. Because Golden State chokes in the finals, they kind of let Oklahoma City off the hook. You know, we got back-to-back 3-1 blown leads, the Thunder blowing the 3-1 to Golden State, and then Golden State blowing the 3-1 to Cleveland. Like, it's not like Oklahoma City was far away or Kevin Durant was... Mm-hmm. Kevin Durant was going to always be justified in leaving if he wanted to, Right. You're your own man. You can go do what you want and make your own decisions. But the fact that Oklahoma City was so close to getting back that season and then, you know, he chose to join the the team that beat them, the team that won 73 uh, games. Yeah. Yeah, it's – we all know what we think about it. I had two other choices that I think we could consider. Uh, It's the same team that lost in the finals, actually – I would point to 2021, uh, the Bucks Suns. The only reason I say that is I think it would be really cool if Chris Paul had gotten a ring finally. Um, Phoenix had had one to hoist. And then the one that my dad always harps on, one of his favorite NBA teams of all time, was 1993 when the Suns played the Bulls. Yeah, that would have been cool. He loved uh, Michael Jordan. He loved the Bulls back in their heyday. But he said the only team that he loved more and the player that he loved more Mm -hmm. was Chuck and uh, those Suns teams. I mean, they're a lot of fun, man. Uh, Thunder Dan, man, Kevin Johnson, Chuck. Uh, it's it's a really fun team, and it, it sucks for Charles Barkley that he never got that ring, and that it just kind of hangs over and lingers over his head. Yeah, uh, good choice. MJ did that. MJ did that to a lot of guys. You could point to a lot of guys that you want to get a ring, but I think the most too painful are Barkley and then and then Chris Paul. So if I could flip, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like taking away from MJ. You know, the mythological six and zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But oh. those are the two other ones I'd point to. Good choices. Last factor I'll say on 2016, Draymond Finals MVP would go crazy. Would go crazy. And earned that and everybody forgets about that game seven, man. Yeah. And I also think like this is really the lone point for like the Steph isn't clutch narrative is this one series where he didn't play well, but he also, you know, wasn't fully healthy, Logan. Like he had an ankle injury. 2015, he was great. Every subsequent finals run and every subsequent playoff run. He's been great. So that annoys me. But also then if there were two non-Steph Finals MVPs for his two rings, perhaps that would present some issues of their own. Real quick, just on the MVP point, it would be 2017 for me. And it's not that I love James Harden. I just think that that is one of, if not the most clear-cut cases of apples to apples 
MVP cases and going with the wrong guy. And the reason that I say that is that when you think about Russell Westbrook and James Harden's value to a basketball team, they share the same flaws. They're going to be low effort defensively. They're not going to necessarily be super high efficiency, although Harden was pretty efficient at this point. They're going to be high turnover, but they're going to be these heliocentric sort of I dictate every possession. And there's ultimately a ceiling to that. But in terms of floor raising that year, Harden was just better at it. Don't believe what the rewritten history tells you. I've gone back. I've looked through all of the media preseason predictions. Everybody thought the Thunder were going to be a better team than the Rockets after losing Dwight Howard, and Harden made that team. You just gave him capable spot-up shooters, Ryan Anderson and the boys. Clint Capella was a nobody, and he led to this elite offense, 55-win team. And really what it came down to was the fact that Russ averaged two more rebounds per game which is insignificant. The triple-double is an insignificant stat. The difference in impact between whether you have 30, 10, and 10, or 29, 9, and 11, right, that is completely insignificant. It only matters to anybody because we decided that hitting this specific benchmark matters when it doesn't in terms of impacting a basketball game. And that was it. And Russ had a crazy low contested rebound rate, so he was literally being force-fed rebounds by his great rebounding teammates like Steven Adams, who was boxing out, and so Russ could start the fast break. Like, to me, it was just an example of misguided factors determining the MVP result. Narrative because KD had left Russ and then the triple-double thing. And really, at the end of the day, it's like these guys are responsible for leading to team offense. And Harden had more offensive talent because he had shooters, but he didn't have... Uh, some really good supporting cast. He led to a dominant team offense. Russ led to an average team offense. The Thunder were in the playoffs because they were a really good team defense, which he was no part of. I also think that Kawhi and LeBron made better cases than Russ that year, but Harden is the one where it's like such a clear comparison. They're bringing the same value. One dude is just doing a better job of it. Two things. The one thing I'll give Russ credit for is that the offense that, he put up so many points with such an offensively inept cast. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that James Harden didn't have a great supporting cast, but the fact that he's out there with Victor Oladipo and Andre Roberson yeah. and, like, literally these... Steven Adams. Steven Adams. I mean, non-floor spacers and an offensive zero like Roberson. Like, it really is impressive that Russ was able to do totally. that with such a horrible supporting cast. But I do think guys made better cases. Would you flip last year's playoff race between Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic? MVP? Well, I thought that Embiid was third. I thought that both Giannis and Jokic made better cases. I didn't like Embiid's, but he did have a, a pretty phenomenal season. And obviously, Russ had a great season too. But it's like, even in terms of floor raising, I thought that LeBron was better that year. The Cavs were 0-8 without him. 0-8, and, and they were, I think, 51-23 and 20, with him and yeah like Russ did a good job through sheer force of making that a capable offense when in terms of personnel they shouldn't have been that they should have been a bad offense but at the end of the day that's not what we typically reward with MVP it's not just floor raising to being capable with low efficiency and sheer volume Harden taking that group of role players nobody else who can threaten a defense with the ball in their hands really and 
making them a top two offense, being so directly responsible for their success as a 55-win team and doing it while producing in terms of raw numbers at the same level as Russ, but on much better efficiency, 6% better true shooting. Or if you don't have a dominant regular season record, something like what Jokic did two years ago, where that team is even less talented than the 2017 Rockets or Thunder because they were without MPJ and Jamal Murray for that entire year. But when he's on the floor, they play as an elite basketball team in terms of point differential and record. And his efficiency is incredible. And he's doing it with a play style that is so clearly conducive to any situation. And and Russ just wasn't checking all those boxes. Other ones, just real quick. 97, I think MJ should have won over Carl Malone. That was voter fatigue. Uh, really, it's tough to make a case for Malone that year. MJ was a slightly higher volume score, better playmaker, slightly better defender on a 69-win team. In 1970, I think... Kareem could have been the third rookie to win MVP right on the tails of Wes Unseld. Willis Reed got it that year. Kareem took a 27-win team, made them a 56-win team, averaged like 29, 14, and 5 on really good efficiency, really impactful defensively. But Willis Reed was on a great Knicks team. It was just much more of a collective effort, in my opinion. All right. D-Ray asks, after C.J. Stroud's outstanding rookie year, where would you rank him among current quarterbacks, and in what light do you view the Texans as a team next year? I think C.J. Stroud's stamped uh, as a top 10 quarterback in the league now. Uh, one of the guys that you would build your franchise around. I'll go ahead and I'll give my list out. Okay. Uh, I think it goes Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Matthew Stafford, and then I'd probably go eh, – the next three guys for me are probably C.J. Stroud, Jordan Love, and, and Aaron Rodgers. No doubt. Some, sort of, some sort of order. He didn't even acknowledge I mean, Dak, Dak. I mean, Dak comes after those guys to me definitively. Uh, hmm. Stroud's a baller, man. Uh, and I think the Texans are real contenders. You think about what they did last season. They already did the hard part. The hard part is establishing the culture and actually getting the team to buy in and to win games. You found your franchise cornerstone and quarterback – He's going to make the offense go. Now it's just about building the assets or out, you know. Uh, defensively, they've got studs, Will Anderson, Jonathan Grenard, Stingley. I mean, it really is, like, I don't mean this hyperbolically. Like, considering how shitty the AFC South is and how non-serious, like, the other teams are in the division, I think the Titans are going to be in the cellar. I think the Colts and Jaguars are going to be competitive, but I think it's the Texans' division to lose. Uh the Jaguars, to me, their entire roster, top to bottom, is just not what the Texans is. Shout out to Trevor Lawrence. I think he's overcoming that situation a lot. Trevor Lawrence has not been the quarterback that I expected him to be at this point. Oh, and T-Law, too. T-Law's in the top ten. I didn't mention him. He wholeheartedly is in that top ten of guys. I'd take him over Dak, too. He's somewhere in that Stroud, Love, Rogers tier. Somewhere in there for me. So, shout out T-Law. He's overcoming that situation, but the Jaguars' roster, top to bottom, to me, is a little too far away. The Colts are good, but it's going to be Anthony Richardson's basically de facto rookie season. I think it's a lot for me to ask Anthony Richardson to propel them to winning the division. The Titans are not a serious football team. So I think the Texans are going to win the South again next year. And with a good draft where I think you invest in O-line, I think you uh, I think you invest up front with the big boys, I think you go out and you get another interior guy probably in the middle uh, I think you get some linebackers, some more defensive guys, and I think the Texans are going to be set. Like, you have the culture, you have the building blocks, you have the head coach. 
Well, what I'm saying is the foundation is rock solid. Now it's about putting the house in and building on top of it. I think the Texans are going to be a playoff team if C.J. Stroud stays healthy, and I think they're legit contenders. Like, you think about the – thing, the thing that's tough is about the AFC is, Carson, we talked about this all season long. The AFC's quarterbacks and teams are going to eat themselves alive. Like, you are going to be battle-tested, tried and true by the time you get to the Super Bowl, and it's kind of just a matter of hoping that – this elite quarterback knocks out this elite quarterback. It is going to be seven elite quarterbacks in the playoff field every single year. And so, I mean, the Texans can go as far as they can. It's kind of like, damn, I just hope we don't run into Mahomes. You know what I mean? I hope Mahomes gets knocked out by Burrow, or I hope Mahomes gets knocked out by Josh Allen. It's about (laughs) avoiding the Chiefs. So, I consider the Texans kind of in my legit contenders tier where I think they can go as far as C.J. Stroud can take them. If that's an AFC title game, if that's a divisional round, if it's the Super Bowl, uh, I think the Texans are really, really legit. Um, They were just young last year, and I think that's what limited them. Now they've got a year of experience. They're getting older. There's another crop uh, in year of draft talent coming in. Uh, I'm really high on the Texans. I think they're a real contender. I think it's going to depend on how they handle this offseason but they have the potential to be a real contender because they got a bunch of cap and i think that they have already i would say a top eight quarterback in football and cj stroud i agree with the names that you had above him the when you were talking about like clearly and then you paused and then i don't know necessarily how i feel about some of the other guys but mahomes josh lamar herbert burrow stafford i would still Man, have dude, Dak too low on him. burrow dude you what have Lamar and Herbert above Joe. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Carried by Kevin Byron McPherson. I think you just got I think you got love scars from Joe no, Burrow, man. No. I think you got love scars. No, we can have a Joe Burrow debate if you want right now. Lamar he could never be a one man offense like Lamar, bro. Could never. Mm-hmm. Lamar leads out mm-hmm. better regular season offenses with Hollywood Brown as his number one receiver that's like than saying Joe Drew, Burrow. That's does like with saying T. Drew Higgins, Brees couldn't. No, That's like not. saying Drew Brees couldn't lead out great offenses, man. No, it's not. First of all, I didn't say great offenses. And by the way, great Joe one, Burrow but... hasn't led great offenses. Joe Burrow has not led a great regular season offense. They've never been a top five scoring offense with him. Then they get to the playoffs. They get a couple timely takeaways. Evan McPherson makes 8,000 field goals from 75 yards or more. And that's it's that. Okay, Car- Carson, do you need a hug, man? No, I don't. No, I don't. It's I just okay, don't appreciate man. It's okay, the insinuation. Man. Look, dude, at the end of the day, to me, the margin between three and five is very slim. Josh Allen is it obviously It is. It is. I'm going to just put on – I'm going to just put on for my boy. I put respect on Joe. I think he's – I would take him yeah, three. He's, he's my great. third quarterback. Well, he was your QB two before the year, and then Josh showed him oh, – Josh Allen's play. him. Josh Allen. And Loki, I think in revision – like, if we're thinking about it, man – I low-key think we got MVP wrong, man. I think Josh probably should have won MVP over Lamar. I don't, actually. I think it's close. Uh, to me, the fact that Josh didn't finish top five was insane. I thought Josh was clearly second, but the Ravens were so consistently great. Lamar was in control of every game. He played a very, very clean season. Josh made a lot of oopsies this year. Josh had some ugly moments. The good so outweighed the bad. But, like, just looking at specifically this regular season, I felt that Lamar deserved it, but Josh should have been second. Anyways, talking about C.J. Stroud, he's the man. We know that he's the man. Historically great rookie quarterback. And I think it's what you said. Invest in the O-line, specifically on the interior. Ideally, through the draft, probably upgrade at running back. I just think it would be nice to have one more, like, actual dynamic playmaker on the field. No hate to Bill's legend, Devin Singletary. He just doesn't really 
doesn't really uh, rev my engine, you know? Like, he's in that mid-range. And then they've got a bunch of cap space. So maybe linebacker safety, you make a, a splashy upgrade there. If they nail those moves, then I think that absolutely this is a team that has real contending potential. The AFC is brutal, but they've got the quarterback, they've got the coach, and they've got the fundamental pieces in place. I mean, they've got a really good young receiving core. They've got some really good young pass rushers. It's just going to be some of the uh, additional supporting position groups on both sides of the ball. Get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers who deposit $5 or more can get a no-sweat bet up to $1,000 back in a bonus bet. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get a no-sweat bet up to $1,000 if your first bet loses. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Okay, Nigel asks, in a hypothetical scenario, the Nuggets and Clippers don't make it out of the West. Who does? There's two teams to me, and they may not be the teams you expect. I don't know if a lot of people would take the Timberwolves or the Thunder because of records. My first team would be Phoenix, and the mm. only reason I say Phoenix, and, and in this hypothetical scenario, I think it takes injuries to stars and that's always the thing about football bat whatever sport injuries dictate a lot of it right sure. um i think it would take injuries to stars that limit you know either murray or pg or Kawhi or Jokic. i think it would take a serious injury to a star for one of these teams to not make it out west that's how confident i am in these two teams as the top two out west next would be phoenix just because they could withstand an injury to one guy and they have a lot of firepower at the top where they're just going to make shots. Like, you think about, I know a lot of people, you know, revisionist history, look at that Suns-Nuggets series and think that it was uber competitive because it was six or it was four to two in six games. And the Suns did effectively win those games. You get super hot from the mid-range. You just light them up. You know, it's really hard to defend in the playoffs in those grimy buckets. In those scenarios, I trust Phoenix more than a lot of other teams to continue to manufacture offense. It may not be the most dynamic, and it may not be the... Uh, most conducive to winning, but you've got a lot of tough buckets on the roster. And sometimes in a playoff scenario, that's just going to matter more. And if they can reach an average defensive ceiling with injuries to other teams, that could be enough. Like you think about Dallas getting to the uh, Western Conference Finals a couple years back with Luka, similar scenario, but they have more offensive firepower. And speaking of Luka, the other team that I would point to out West, if it's neither of those top two, would be Dallas. Again, when it comes down to it, it's Top-tier shot-making. Luka and Kyrie are going to get me buckets all game long. And now with the moves that they made at the uh, trade deadline, excuse me, to get P.J. Washington, uh, along with Derek Lively, paired up with Daniel Gafford, and they got rid of the Michelin man, Grant Williams. Grant is balling. Grant is balling. How dare you? He can't miss in Charlotte. Peace. Bye, Grant. Uh, Good luck, buddy. Um... They got the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man out there in Charlotte, man. Uh, Now that he has been banished uh, over to the East Coast, uh, 
and with the additions, I think Dallas is is really primed. I like their role players a lot more. You've got other shot makers too, like Tim Hardaway Jr. is a guy that can swing a playoff series with his shooting. I just like their role players, their depth a lot more. I like their interior defense. They got more athleticism and physicality inside. And again, at the end of the day, when you got Luka and Kyrie, I believe a lot of magic things can happen with those two on the court. Mm -hmm. So those would be my top two. After that, I I don't know, man. Golden State and L.A., but there's a drop-off between those two teams to L.A. and Golden State. How far are you going before you get to Minnesota? Because now you're I'd talking probably, about six teams out west. Yeah, I'd go Phoenix, Dallas, Golden State, Minnesota, wow. L.A. Wow. I'm higher on Minnesota. And, like, listen, I have been more scared off in the past, and correctly so, by teams that don't manufacture very good half-court offense in the playoffs. It's not a good thing. It's why I've never bought into the Grizzlies as, like, a legit playoff threat in recent years. But... I think of this Minnesota team is much better set up to compensate for a lack of a great half-court offense because they have two physically gifted high-end shot creators and shot makers and Ant and Cat who I think can scale well to that playoff environment because of their physical advantages in that grimy rock fight that you're talking about. And then they are just a dominant defense, dude. Dominant. And I think that we see that kind of regardless of a matchup, they've been able to maintain that level. The Suns intrigue me because KD and Book is terrifying. And now that you have Royce O'Neal, he's kind of that two-way wing that we've been talking about them missing. A guy who can defend at the point of attack and knock down shots. And he's got a little bit more of that physicality to him. So I do like that move. In Dallas, I would also highlight, like, I think that those are the three for me after the top two, because if you get unstoppable Luka, who you very well may get, and you get hot Kyrie, who you very well may get, both those guys are playing unbelievably. Now that you are improved in terms of your athleticism in the front court, and you've got enough shooting on the wings, like, your backcourt goes nuclear, you do enough in terms of defense and rebounding and whatnot, then you could get there. At the end of the day, though, I just think that Minnesota is going to physically kind of dominate any of these teams. And I don't think that scoring on Minnesota is ever going to come easy. And like as great as book and KDR, I just worry. I worry about consistently relying on the tough twos and an extended run for any playoff team. So I think I'm going Minnesota here, but it's close. And uh, Phoenix and Dallas are both looking scarier as of late. Okay, I like this question from Ben. If you didn't have a favorite team and had to pick one today, based on how much you like the players on a roster, who would you ride with? Uh, My favorite teams to watch are always teams that play beautiful basketball with good ball movement, that play hard defense. Uh, When I was a kid, my favorite team to watch, uh, the first team I ever watched that was uh, awesome. I love the 2011 Dallas Mavericks. That was the first team that I really loved watching play basketball. Mm-hmm. Defensively, the outside shot making, the unselfish play, like they were a great team. Uh, the Spurs. Uh, Dodge, you would loved the 77 Blazers, I'm telling you. I mean, talk about a team. Mo Lucas and the boys, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really loved watching the Warriors. I know a lot of people hated Golden State. I don't know how you can. I still adore the Warriors. Like, watching them is is heavenly. And the team that reminds me most of those teams of old are the New York Knicks. If I had to pick a team today, it would be the New York Knicks, unequivocally. They have one of my favorite players in the league in Jalen Brunson. 
Uh, they've got a lot of guys that play unselfishly. They play hard. They're gritty. They play defense. They crash the glass. They do the little things. And they're just a great team, man. You just see it on the floor. Like, uh, the Knicks, to me, just play really beautiful basketball. They're probably my favorite team to watch uh, in the NBA today outside of Golden State. There's something about the Dubs, man, and Steph Curry. Like, I yeah, I can't ever get enough of, of Golden State. But if I had to pick one, it'd be the Knicks, man. They play really beautiful basketball. They play hard. They got a lot of heart, man. And uh, I like teams with a lot of heart, with a lot of dog in them. Uh, I like watching the Knicks a lot. Their only problem is they have Julius Randle. But I really True. like watching the Knicks, too. So I'm a Warriors fan. I do love how they play basketball. I think that the motion-based offense, everything that they do in terms of off-ball movement, it's so aesthetically pleasing. I love it. I love watching the ball move like that. And I love basketball teams who are predicated upon skill. One of my favorite traits is just great passing in basketball players. And then I really love versatile shot making. Like, not so much ball-stopping one-on-one stuff, but I really like dudes who... Like, if you have great post footwork, right? If you have a bunch of counters in a situation like that, which is very graceful scoring, I do enjoy. And the Nuggets give me kind of all of those things. Like, I love watching the Nuggets play. I think watching Jokic conduct offense is so awesome. I love his touch shot making. I just love touch in general. Uh, that, that sounded kind of weird, but I really enjoy it in terms of basketball and the passing, obviously. But then Murray brings like that super tough bucket, crazy fluid. Oh my God, he can go to every counter. He can hit you with the turnaround, the step back, etc. And everybody just complements each other so perfectly. Aaron Gordon fits in so beautifully. The physical mismatch attacker, rim finisher, can play multiple roles defensively. MPJ, that guy's fun to watch shoot because he's just like got that rare ability to rise up no matter what because of his height and just drain him. I love KCP, what he does in terms of effort defensively and his spot up shooting and close out attacking. That's just like such a beautiful, such a beautiful symbiotic basketball team. But I also really, really love the Thunder. And I think that like that's the team a few years down the line that is going to be probably running stuff in the league and so much fun to watch. SGA, when I talk about the counters, when I talk about that versatile scoring and like balance, just like graceful movers, he's incredible. He's like a ballerina on the basketball court who's also this unreal shot maker and a great athlete. And Jalen Williams, again, just like tough to stay in front of, but then he can shift gears at such a high level. He's a big time mid-range shot maker. All of these guys are good passers. All of them are good athletes. I love super skilled bigs like Chet who can pass, big-time shooter, such a great defender. Josh Giddy, unfortunately, is another story I don't much like him at all for multiple reasons, but, like, once they ship him out, even just dropping Gordon Hayward in there, like, what an awesome basketball team to watch. So those would be my two choices. Okay, this has been a real hot-button topic around uh, the NBA Twitter sphere and just discourse. Max asks, do you think anything needs to be changed with the current All-Star weekend, whether that be the game itself, the weekend as a whole, etc.? Yes, multiple things. One, I think we need to start putting people that love basketball on the broadcast. Oh, uh, yeah, W take. It really dejected me hearing Kenny Smith's comments after Sabrina and Steph went head-to-head. Wow, I was astonished. Insane. I was uh, at my... I was at my work. We were watching the three-point contest. Uh, it was a little slower, so I could actually watch Sabrina and Steph go head-to-head. 
the energy in the building was great. Everybody was glued to the TV watching Sabrina shoot, and you could tell, like, it was awesome. It made my day as a basketball fan, yeah. watching Sabrina drain those threes. It was freaking awesome. I loved every second of that. I was like, finally, dude. I, I, she put up 26, man. Yeah. I, what else do you want the girl to do from NBA range? It was awesome. It was freaking awesome, man. I loved that. Like, it fired everybody up in the building. We were so excited, and for... A brief split second, we all thought, man, Sabrina might beat the best shooter on planet Earth. Yeah. Ultimately, that was the... Did we really expect Sabrina to win? No, you put her up against the greatest shooter to ever touch a basketball. Yeah. So how can you fault her for falling short when she had the best round of anybody? And there's just... She would have just whoop. she would have been tied with all the dudes it's, who went to the playoff in the men's competition. Nobody got more exactly. than 26 outside of Steph Curry. And the thing that really plucks my nerves is there's just a lot of woman haters on this uh, planet that don't want to give any of them props. Oh, she should have shot from the WNBA line. Shut the hell up, Kenny. Oh, she should have, uh, well, let's make her shoot with an NBA-sized ball. Do you guys have brains? No. Do y'all, like, critically think at all? I am, I, I was so proud of Sabrina. I thought she put on a show. I thought she performed her ass off, and I came away from it going, can we please put some respect on the women? This is the most talented women's basketball has ever been, and I am so excited for when Caitlin Clark gets yeah. to the WNBA and we can get some eyes on this product because it's going to be a lot of fun. These girls are ballers. They are freaking skilled. Yeah. They are smart. They play good ball. And I think it is just so sad and pathetic that we continue to tear down these women uh, for no reason other than the fact that they're not men. Uh, I thought it was uh, really pathetic uh, how Kenny phrased that yeah. and how he painted that picture. Um, I was really disappointed with that. And so first and foremost, uh, we can get to uh, – because I have some changes for the All-Star game that I think we should make. Yeah. First and foremost, can we get the haters out of the building and can we put people that genuinely love the game and love ball – uh, on the broadcast. That's the first change I'd make. Yeah, well, that's just a reality for all of basketball media, dude. There is so much unnecessary negativity. I'm not talking about fair criticisms of individual players because you have to do that. Like, you hear the things that we say about Julius Randle. Like, you can't be honest without being critical. But it, it is the blind and unwarranted hating of the sport as a whole that just permeates NBA media and takes the focus away from all of the beautiful things going on in any given basketball game, all of the strategy, all of the historically unparalleled skill, and it just devolves into the same toxic debates and the same stupid, beaten-to-death talking points about why things used to be better, and it's just very exhausting, and I really resent that about NBA media as a whole. Specifically with this, though, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, that is another just horrible part of NBA media culture and sports media culture is just the way that people talk about women in sports. Like it's, it, it really sucks. And obviously that speaks to a greater societal illness that has to be addressed. But Kenny, Kenny's kind of an idiot and I really don't know what he was talking about. And just to explain why you, you asked if we have brains when you're talking about her shooting with an NBA ball. That's so different from shooting from NBA distance because think about it, right? She's playing on the same basketball court, okay? The three-point line is just a little bit closer. Sabrina pulls from NBA range in games, right? Moving a few feet back 
is something that she already does within the context of the sport that she is playing. She can totally do that. And she did. And she stepped up and she fucking balled. Changing the ball that you shoot with is now asking someone to rewire what they practice every single day for hours and hours on end. Changing conditions like that, right? It'd be like asking somebody to, to hit with a different bat in baseball. It'd be like asking somebody to play with a different racket in tennis. It's just stupid and... Uh, it's not at all comparable to her shooting from NBA range, which she did again and got a score that would have tied anybody in the men's competition. So I agree. That was just disheartening and it was stupid and it was a bad look for the NBA media overall. Yeah. The other change I would make is uh, for the all-star game specifically, Scott Van Pelt said this on Twitter and I think he made a great point. If you want people to care about the game, have the players care about the game. And I don't mean mm -hmm. that, these guys got to go full bore Sean Taylor in the Pro Bowl, lighten up Brian Mormon on a fourth down fake punt. Yeah. We ain't got to lick somebody, man. We ain't got to go full bore, full hard, you know, yeah. crazy. But, I mean, dude, Luca's launching a 85-foot shot with 40 seconds left. It's like, can we have some semblance of a regular basketball game if the players... Two for one. <laughs> I guess. Got the two for one. If the players play like it means something, the fans would watch it like it means something. But if the players yeah. play and don't care about the game, then we're not. And I'm not asking us to go again full stop, but can we play a little defense? Can we, you know, like, here's my thing. is like if somebody goes to the rim and blows by his guy, you don't have to contest it. Let the guy throw down a rim rattler. But can you pretend to play a little on-ball defense? And to me, it's like, uh, it, it's like the pro bowler. It's like... If this is the product that we're going to get and it's going to be so lackluster, why do we even play the game, man? Why, you know, I enjoyed right. the Rising right. Stars game more than the All-Star game. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoyed yeah. those festivities more. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I think that's obviously the problem. The question is, like, how do you solve that? What are the incentives? What are the changes to where this game that hasn't meant something for quite some time and that's one thing that's a little bit weird about the outrage everybody's freaking out like this is the first time they've watched an all-star game guys the all-star game sucks all-star events and sports suck the pro bowl is unwatchable is way worse off than nba all-star weekend which by the way also is bad like i didn't watch the all-star game I watched the dunk contest and I watched Steph Sabrina and like that was kind of it. And I, I love basketball. I'm addicted to basketball. This is its own kind of little like freak sideshow that nobody cares about and we shouldn't get our hopes up for it. But if you are going to get guys to play like it means something, then how do you do that? It's a good question. I don't know. People talked about uh, the old MLB rule for the All-Star game, which I hate. Yeah. I don't really? think that's... I don't think that's the right move. I mean, I think it should be the better team gets, you know what I mean? So I, to be clear, that is the winner of the all-star game has home field advantage and in the NBA finals. That being said, if we did do that, I mean, I think guys would play their, you know, I think they'd play super hard. So be a real basketball game. It would be an answer that would make it a real basketball game. Some have talked about changing the incentives uh, from the in-season tournament and making the all-star game. I think if we're going to legitimize the in-season tournament and make it its own entity and try to build it up as something that means something, then I think you have to keep those incentives for the in-season in tournament. So it's either, 
I guess we're down to two options, Carson, and that's you change it drastically and we do something groundbreaking where we make the All-Star game mean more than it ever has before and let that determine where Game 7 is played, or we throw money at the players and say, hey, if y'all win this game, we're going to throw y'all a big old bag, so go out there and play like it means something. Play hard. Uh, And the money thing, I don't know if that would really move the needle because these guys already make so much money, um, you know, Every game, it's like, would that really move the needle? Like, that would change it, but I don't know. Like, to you, Carson, as a basketball purist, like, would you be okay with Game 7's location being decided by an All-Star game? Listen, I think it's weird, but there has to be some incentive to play, and there just isn't right now. So I kind of like it. But honestly, my focus with All-Star Weekend is more about fixing the events outside I, I of the agree. game itself. I agree. Like the dunk contest. I think the game is just broken. The dunk contest is tough, too, because it's not like we don't have good athletes. We were talking about this with Pablo last week. It's just so hard to do a creative dunk now, right? Like Jacob Toppin does a 360 between the legs and he gets a 47. Which, by the way, was just terrible judging. I don't know what they were doing. I don't know what they were seeing with Jalen Brown where they were like, oh, 49! And then Jacob does something actually sick and they're like, yeah, it doesn't really move the needle for me. I legitimately think we should do some sort of NBA players versus Instagram dunkers-like competition. I think the best dunkers on the planet just are not in the dunk contest outside of Mac McClung who is not an actual NBA player. He is a G League player who gets called up for the event. He hasn't appeared in an NBA game this year. And he's a sick dunker, and he actually makes the competition. But, like, that's just the reality. The The NBA stars, those days are past us. Stephen A. said LeBron ruined the dunk contest. No, no stars have participated in the dunk contest for the last 15-plus years. And, like, I don't know. I guess he had a role in that because he didn't do it, and stars used to do it. But I think it's a much more widespread cultural change throughout the league than you can just put on LeBron. So I would at least get like cooler dunkers in there because really what's the difference to, I mean, the average NBA fan between a Jacob Toppin in terms of name recognition and what's his face? Jordan Kilgannon, like a a really cool dunker online. It doesn't matter. Or like, I would say even if we have to dig into, because Mac entertained me, and a lot of people at the bar did not like uh, the dunk contest. There was this one girl I was standing up there next to, and she goes, I think <laughs> I think Jacob Toppin dunked, and she goes, this is the dumbest thing I've ever watched. And I was like, yep, yeah, pretty much. Wow. That's, that's about right. Um, I think you're right, dude. I mean, if it takes us getting actual dunkers or if we have to go deeper into the g league depths you're right like if there's no name value recognition who cares like let's get Derek jones jr back out there let's spring out and the reality of it is is nothing will ever top what aaron gordon and zach levine did and it sucks because if you were there for those two dunk contests it was the greatest oh my god man i can't explain to you how happy those two dunk contests made me as a kid they yeah uh, two of the greatest nights of my life the reactions from the fans the the feeling at my house the it was nuts those two events were crazy and so if that's what sucks is like we know there's those are we have dunkers like that and we have guys who are probably creative enough to do that but i agree with you man if we're gonna bring out quote-unquote bums or like guys who we just don't know 
Like, well, you're the one. You're the only one calling them bums. To be but clear, but it's like if we're bringing out like non-NBA guys, who cares? Let's bring out just the best dunkers. Period. If it's going to make it more entertaining, let's do that. Whatever's better for the product. The bottom line is that the three-point contest has completely surpassed it. The uh, if we do steps, you think Sabrina, so? Oh my! I don't think it's close. I think the three-point contest laps the dunk contest. Interesting. I don't know, dude. I still kind of like the dunk contest, and like, I think that Mac did some legit cool stuff. He yeah. did something actually original. I liked when he uh, jumped over Bro and then tapped the ball up to himself. I mm-hmm. thought that that was cool. Dunking over Shaq, obviously everybody dunks over everybody, but like it was still pretty freaking sick with the reverse. Oh, what about when I Jaylen like the Brown dunk dunked over it's Tyson? Not I hated that. I hated that, dude. Oh, my God. Jalen Brown, an intellectual man, a social activist, former captain of his chess team, a Berkeley man, a scholar through and through, brought out Kaisenat live on stream to dunk over a five foot three man sitting down. It was really one of the weakest dunk performances ever from Jalen, and he somehow got into the final, which was insane. Also, by the way, just more on Kenny. Kenny said that he didn't know that Jaime Hawkes had bounce, and he said that he had never that he didn't know that Tyrese Halliburton could shoot from three at this frequency. Tyrese Halliburton, who has been having like a, a pull-up three-point shooting season that only Steph Curry can hit throughout NBA history. That's the one aspect of All-Star Weekend that I do like is when certain analysts open their mouth and you can just tell that they haven't watched ball this year or something like that. And that's yeah, that, but they that do is that one of my fun aspects. Time. True. Anyways, real quick, before we move on, the events that I would like to see actually added to All-Star Weekend, things that could actually change the dynamics. The skill challenge sucks. We don't need that. The dunk contest and three-point contest are just such staples that they're always going to be around. And I think that, again, we can do more experimenting with the dunk contest. The three-point contest is what it is. It's really, there's nothing to change there. I would love to see the 1v1 tournament. I think that would be the coolest thing. That would be the coolest thing. And if you can get dudes in there, then they will play with pride. I would love to see it happen. I don't know if guys are too concerned about their reputations to even want it to be an event, but like that would be a dream come true. What NBA fan doesn't want to watch Katie and Kyrie play one-on-one? Like it, it would be so, so entertaining. And the other thing that I would like to see is a three-on-three tournament. I would just like to see guys in that environment playing basketball in the half court with the super open spacing. And then what you do is you just like split up the full rosters, right? We have 24 guys. You turn that into eight teams of three. You set up a little bracket. Every game is only to 11 and there's consistent stakes then. So it's not a 48 minute game where it doesn't matter for 46 minutes no matter what. And, oh, what if we get into a blowout? Every single time, you're already close to crunch time. You're playing to 11, ones and twos. And I just think that that would be so much better for the stakes. It would be different. I don't care that it's not five-on-five basketball. The five-on-five basketball game sucks. I concur. I think those would be awesome additions. And I think think the players would play harder. And that's the point. That is what we are trying to reach. I think the one-on-one tournament would be immaculate, though, man. And can you imagine? Like, you get the banner. I'm the coldest dude in the league. I'm the best ISO guy in the league. That would mean something. I would rather watch them play 
Duck Duck Goose. I would rather watch them play London Bridges Falling Down than watch an entire NBA All-Star game. 100p. I would like to watch them play dodgeball. What if we just started doing other sports? That would be more fun to me. What about a 7-on-7 football game at NBA All-Star Weekend? I think guys would try more in that. Micah Parsons played harder in the All-Star game than any of the NBA All-Stars. You know why? He actually has something to prove. He can actually show people, hey, I'm pretty sick at basketball. These guys have nothing to prove. They have nothing to gain with things as they're currently constructed. So there's a lot to change. Okay. Richard asks, how much defensive impact does Wemby have to have in this era for you to consider him a better defender than Bill Russell? Great question. Is it about switchability or can he protect the rim at a comparable level and become the best defender ever that way? The first thing I'd say about this is it's really hard to compare across eras because you have to think about in Bill Russell's era, there was no three-point line. The most valuable yeah. shot is a shot at the rim, which in turn means that that's where guys are trying to get. They're trying to get close to the rim. You can funnel guys in, and Bill was great as a deterrent in protecting the rim. The difference to me is Wemby's insane length. We've never seen a guy with tools like this. Seven foot four, eight foot wingspan. Uh, I mean, which just means he can cover more ground. He can cover more space. He can jump into more passing lanes. He can close out better with less effort. And he's a really fluid athletic mover uh, for his size. And so... I mean, all that combined, I mean, Carson, I know this has been one of your fundamental takes about Wemby for a while, but I really do think Wemby could be the best defender ever in terms of defensive yeah. playmaking, in terms of rim deterrent, in terms of rebounding, uh, and switchability. Like, yeah, I know Victor looks like a giraffe, but he does not move like one, man. He is nimble. You know, he moves really fluidly for a guy that size, and so... I don't think we can take anything away from Bill Russell. You know, I think it's a disservice to him if you were like, uh, first of all, I think if you drop Bill Russell in today's game, he could figure it out and he'd be an all-time defender there. I, I don't think that guys, because they played in a different era, I think that if you gave them time to adjust to today's game, a baller's a baller. He's going to be a baller in whatever era you play him in. I think Bill Russell would be a great defender. Would he be less impactful because he's... Uh, not as great an athlete as the guys today because maybe he isn't uh, as big or strong because our athletes are better today? Maybe. But I still think Bill Russell would be an impactful and great player. You know, that just doesn't change. But Wemby is such a physical specimen that he can just do things that other great players can't. He can do things that Bill Russell can't. And because he's doing this in a tougher era, in a more skilled era with better athletes, with you know better players, I do think it's impressive. And I do think he can be the greatest defender ever. It's just... It really is hard comparing guys that, you know, that played, damn, man, I mean, 60 years apart. It really is tough. So I believe in judging people relative to their contemporaries. That's my whole thing. That's why I never believe in like the, oh, that guy played against Plumbers thing. And Russell dominated defensively versus his contemporaries in a way that we may never see again. But I also think that Wemby has an opportunity to exceed his peers in a way that we've never seen before. Even if that doesn't mean every single year we're the number one defense, because nobody could do that. So that like judging people versus their contemporaries goes both ways. I think it doesn't just favor these older players because the game has progressed since then and things have changed. Wemby has the ability to blend all time rim protection with that really impressive ability to guard in space in a way that we've never seen. He has tools like nobody we've ever seen. He is, as a rookie, on pace, if he were playing 36 minutes a game, to be averaging 5.4 combined steals and blocks per game. 
That's production that we haven't seen from anybody. Forget about rookies. In 32 years, he has already made the Spurs defense so much better. In terms of opponent defensive field goal percentage at the rim, he is already among the league's elite rim protectors. So we've just never seen anything like him. We've never seen a 7'4 dude with an 8-foot wingspan who has great instincts and who moves really well. That's just the reality. So ultimately, I think that his argument is going to be about that combination and being the best any modern big man could possibly be defensively to answer your question so it's not just about switchability it's about that combination with this all-time rim protection that we would have seen from the great defensive bigs of old the akeems the david robinsons both of whom were agile obviously but they weren't seven four it's that all-around combination that just makes Wemby one of a kind and makes him the potential defensive GOAT. But I mentioned David Robinson. Dunks and Hoops asks, what's y'all's perspective of David Robinson's career? Do you believe he should have won and done more as a lone star? Or was he held back by the lack of a second star? It's a great question. Uh, I think it's one of the best yeah. questions in today's mailbag. Uh, that being said, I think it is a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I think David Robinson is probably slightly historically overrated in terms of uh, his career accomplishments. But I also think it's hard to criticize him when he didn't have that second guy to turn to and, you know, and tell Tim Duncan. Uh, he played in 27 career playoff series. Uh, he was five and six in series without Tim Duncan. He was 12 and four in series with Tim Duncan. So obviously he benefited from having him, but who wouldn't, right? Yeah. Um, in, 16 of 27 playoff series, he was under 20 points per game, and he was also under 50% from the field. In 8 of 27 playoff series, he was at 45% or lower from the field. So I think he did underachieve a little bit in his playoff career, but again, it's hard when you're that singular guy that teams can key in on and don't have to respect other players, or you have another, you know, more guys that you can count on. Um, he didn't win a title until Tim Duncan came around, and he played a lesser role on some of the later title teams, so I think uh, he can get a little overrated because of that. But I think it's, I don't know, it's its a mixed bag. Like, I, I think that it's a little of both. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it is hard to win without a second star, but I also don't think that David Robinson played up to his absolute apex uh, every year in the playoffs. Here's what I think. Robinson is a top 30 player ever to me and we did our top 25 players over the summer and i think he is literally the first guy off he's probably my number 26 player ever and you mentioned some of his shortcomings logan fair i also think that we can underrate truly the all-time floor raiser that he was we were just doing our all rookie draft last week and you talked about how he took a 21 win team and yes there were improvements alongside him sean elliott upgrading the point guard position getting mo cheeks and then trading him for Rod Strickland. But that is a massive, massive impact from your star player. And consistently, like, he just made the Spurs an elite team without elite talent. In the seven years before Duncan, they averaged 55 wins a year with Robinson. They had four top three defenses. He's one of the all-time great defensive forces that we've ever seen. And whenever he went out, they just weren't all that good. Coming off of a 59-win season... In 1997, the year he gets hurt, they were 3-3 three and three when he played, and then 17-59 and 59 without him. Sean Elliott misses a lot of games that year too, but uh, that's still absurd. And then 1992, he misses some games. They were 42-26 and 26 when he played, 5-9 and nine when he didn't. So, I honestly think that his pre-Duncan legacy and resume 
is quite similar to KG's pre-Boston legacy and resume. You have these guys who are all-time, clearly top 10 all-time defenders and are still uniquely skilled for bigs offensively with mid-range shot making, with playmaking, with their agility overall. And they can make you decent enough there, but ultimately, can that guy be your offensive number one on a title team? it's a really tall task. I think KG is a little bit different because he was dealing with such comically bad talent for most of those years. And I think that his offensive skill scaled a little better. He was actually a better playmaker. He was a better jump shooter. Robinson had some ugly series before Duncan. It's not that he was awful. He averaged 24, 12, and 3 on plus 2% true shooting versus league average in the playoffs over those years. But his efficiency took a real hit. He averaged as many turnovers as assists. And generally, the trend was that the greater offensive players, the best guy opposite him, if it was Akeem, dogged him. If it was Barkley, like, that guy would generally win out. So, for those reasons, I think that David Robinson's legacy is pretty appropriate in terms of how he's viewed like he was an awesome floor raiser but him taking you all the way as your offensive number one to a title i don't know if that could have happened it would have required pretty great supporting cast around him but as a defensive anchor and offensive number two i mean he's one of the best that we've ever seen and that's what happened with duncan and it would have been cool if we could have seen a few more years of robinson if he had come into the league sooner than 24 and if maybe he did have a second star who complimented him in a different way than Duncan. Like, defensively, what they did was all-time special. But maybe, like, Robinson is your defensive anchor, and then you have a big-time perimeter shot maker who can be your offensive number one. Maybe they could have won a title like that, but I think that we got a pretty good sense of who David Robinson was in those years without Duncan. All right, one more Spurs question, Logan. This is from Cameron. What does a Trey Young to San Antonio trade really look like? I need to hear from an unbiased, logical point of view. So I put this through the trade machine. The money does work out. Okay. Uh, this could work. Uh, tell me if you think this is enough value. I think it is. Uh, I said Keldon Johnson, Malachi Branham, Trey Jones, Blake Wesley, a 24 first round pick, top six protected from Toronto. Uh, San Antonio is sending back the Hawks their own 2025 first-round pick. They are going to send a 25 first-round pick from the Bulls that is top 10 protected, and then a 26 first-round pick. Uh, Atlanta, uh, this is Atlanta's first round. They have swap rights, so Atlanta would get the better of the Spurs-Hawks picks. Basically, they just get their pick back. Yeah. So to summarize, Keldon Johnson, Malachi Branham, Trey Jones, Blake Wesley, four first-round picks. And all the Hawks give up is Trey Young. The money works out. I think it's approximate value. And, I mean, you're getting a really great offensive superstar to pair alongside with Wemby. Uh, I think they would complement each other really, yeah. really well. And I think the Spurs desperately need uh, they desperately need a point guard. They desperately need another guy who can get buckets. Uh, you're eliminating Jeremy Sohan point guard minutes completely. Uh, maybe throw him in the deal, uh, just eliminate him from San Antonio. The important piece of this is that I think you keep Devin Vassell. I think he's a really great yeah. complimentary number three guy for this team, and I wouldn't want to lose him in a hypothetical trade. So I think you got to give up some young assets. you got to give up your starting point guard. you got to give up Keldon. you got to give up some draft capital, but I think it would be worth it, and that's what I'd give up. I absolutely agree that it's worth it. I'm thinking about the particulars of the deal that you've proposed. I wonder... If you could get away with keeping one of Branham or Trey Jones, 
and maybe you just throw in like Devonte Graham there, who's a useless asset, but that makes the money work in terms of he's got a mid-sized contract through next year. But overall, I wouldn't be like, oh, that's such an overpay, because I don't think that Trey Jones or Malachi Branham is like a must-have. I would rather have Branham. Trey Jones actually really is only valuable in a world where you don't have Trey Young and you need like a capable point guard who can at least do that basic stuff setting up Wemby. But I think that that's pretty much right. Keldon Johnson is the shiny young asset, and then maybe one or two with a mid-sized veteran contract that doesn't really matter. And then four first-round picks, I think that's pretty appropriate. The beauty of this for San Antonio and why it can feel like such a win is you can just give the Hawks most of their picks back. You don't really have to give up any of your own picks because they've got a couple from other teams as well. But because of the DeJounte trade, they have three Hawks picks. Give them back. Give them back. And give them Keldon Johnson, who frankly I don't think is essential to this team's future at all. I don't love how he scales to like a real winning basketball team. I think that he and Vassell can be a bit redundant and Vassell is just kind of better across the board. I think that Vassell is a more fluid shot creator. I think that he is a better playmaker. I think he is a much better pure shooter. I think he has better defensive tools. It's no brainer to me between the two of them that Vassell is the guy going forward. And if you get Trey, I mean, that's a championship duo to me. I'm like confident that's a championship duo because Every issue that we can have about Trey Young is really about him as your offensive number one, or how does he fit alongside other perimeter stars who need to be operating at a decently high volume themselves, running pick and roll, running offense. Like, can he bring enough value away from the ball? Can he... Uh, be unselfish enough alongside those guys in terms of how he plays basketball. If you are pairing him with a great big, then that is just like a beautiful relationship where Trey is just going to make Wemby the best version of himself. I mean, he is going to feed that man. They are going to be constantly stressing defenses. And then on the other side of the ball, whoever could cover up better for Trey's deficiencies defensively than Victor Wembanyama, uh, that duo would win a title. And if you keep Vassell... So you have, like, a really good wing. I mean, you just got to figure out those wing spots, and, and that would be unbelievable. That would be awesome. Okay, Dylan, can you talk about what the Bills should do this offseason? I think the primary focus for the Buffalo Bills uh, in the draft should be getting a wide receiver. Uh, yeah. That is what I would prioritize. You have Dalton Kincaid. Don't know if you're going to have Stephon Diggs. That is why you make a contingency plan. Uh, mm. If you keep Stephon Diggs, you have a great number one and a great, uh, you know, you have a great number one QB wideout pairing. But then if you invest and you hit it, I like uh, I like that neighbors kid, uh, Malik yeah. uh, Neighbors. I like him a lot. I also like that, uh, man, what's that white boy's name uh, from Georgia? Lad McConkey. Lad McConkey. That's white AB, man. I want that kid, dude. Bold, uh, high praise. I would take. I really. I need to. I need to look at the NFL draft more. It's coming up fast. Uh, I've really. I really like those two guys as wideouts in the draft. And so by doing this, you're either getting a really great number two to Stephon Diggs. You can ship Gabe Davis off uh, wherever he needs to go. Um, Bozo. Uh, and so. It also gives you a contingency plan if Diggs wants to leave or if you want to trade Diggs, you can get some more draft capital, reinvest in another position or something like that. 
um, and you have a guy that can replace him. But if you keep everybody, you have Diggs, you have Kincaid, and you got another guy that you can turn to. Again, I like Neighbors. He would probably be the well, guy that I focus in on. The Bills would have to trade up big time to get you would. Like Neighbors. Big you time. would. Um, again, on the low end, uh, maybe you get McConkie or something like that. Wide out to me is where I go in the first two rounds. That is where I'm going if I'm Buffalo. After that secondary, the Trey White injury, uh, Micah Hyde getting older, uh, secondary just getting older up there in age, guys sustaining injuries, uh, Poyer, like, it's time. You have to reinvest there. You need to get younger, faster. You need fresh blood, man. You got to get new guys in the secondary. And uh, next after that, I'm investing in the offensive line. I don't think you can ever go wrong up there. I'm getting Josh Allen. I'm getting James Cook some health. And then after that, I'm getting linebacker depth. I think the Buffalo Bills are really set uh, on their front line. I really like what they've built. They invested a lot of draft capital uh, in their front four, in their edge rushers, and in their interior guys, and I think it has paid off. I think they have solid guys who can get pressure. I'd also figure out how the hell I am getting off of that Von Miller money. I don't know if there's anything in that contract. I'm trying to get off that as fast as I can. And so that's that's my order. That's my itinerary in that order. Wideout, secondary, offensive line, linebacker depth. Go win a chip, Buffalo. Yeah, I think that in terms of the draft, first round, got to go receiver. I wouldn't necessarily expect them to trade up to get into like the Malik neighbors range because then you're talking about maybe top five, definitely top ten. I think it's more likely that they end up with like a Brian Thomas Jr. kind of type, uh, which I'm going to have to watch more of all of these guys to see how much I like them. But that just has to be a position that you address because you can't really have faith in digs sticking around. And frankly, he just wasn't good enough down the stretch last season. And I think that mutually, you might just be at the breaking point in that relationship. And then I agree with a lot of what you laid out. I mean, the secondary, Micah, future there, very unclear. And his contract's up either way. So even if he did want to come back, wouldn't be worth bringing back, in my opinion. I really would like to re-sign Daquan Jones. He was awesome on the interior defensively. Really would like to re-sign Leonard Floyd uh, because he was just a phenomenal edge rusher. And then I think that in terms of linebackers, like Dodson is up, Taylor Rapp is up in the secondary. Like there's some good depth pieces, guys who were sort of diamond in the rough for the Bills. I think you got to bring those guys back. But ultimately, it's going to be about getting younger defensively and therefore ideally being healthier. And it's going to be about just giving that little bit of juice to the group of weapons offensively and getting ready for a post-Stefan Diggs world. Okay. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. 
you'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One last quick question. Evan asks, can you just talk about the Hornets? They're my team, and the media stops talking about teams like them after the All-Star break, but we're 3-0 and since adding the new guys, and I think we could be a playoff team next year. I don't know about that. I mean, I like the enthusiasm, young man. <laughs> uh, I'll hold out hope. I like a lot of the young pieces uh, in Charlotte. Brandon Miller, I think, is a superstar. He is a stud. I love watching LaMelo Ball play, uh, and I want to give a big shout-out. I have not tooted my horn about this guy. I really like Trey Mann out of the draft. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, saddened that he was kind of buried at the bottom of the bench uh, in Oklahoma City. You know, it, it sucks because there's a lot of talented guys. Like, I distinctly remember Trey Mann and Deuce McBride were, you know, two of my favorite guards mm-hmm. coming out. And it sucked, you know, because there's an abundance of great scoring guards and guys who have bags. It's hard to yeah. crack rotation. Like, again, put it into context. I've watched a lot of Mac McClung in the G League. Mac McClung is an NBA player. That guy is a NBA rotational point guard. I believe so. I think he is good enough to be on a roster. Maybe not rotation, but at least good enough to be on a roster. And you see what he can do. A guy like that's not even in the league. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. for a lot of guys, it's just tough cracking rotations. So to see Trey Mann finally get some burn... Um, with the Hornets, he's 14-7-7 seven and seven on 46-46-100 splits. Uh, he's got a butter-smooth game. I like his handle. I like his floater game. Um, the Hornets are a fun team. I hate Grant Williams. Like, I think Grant Williams sucks. I think you guys should just, like, let him game. go. 17 um, a game. Can't miss in Charlotte. I suppose. Uh, so, good luck with Grant. I-, I like what they're doing, though. I like that Charlotte is uh, – I like that Charlotte has picked a direction that they're getting younger. They moved off Gordon Hayward this year. They moved off Terry Rozier. I'm glad that they've picked a direction. I'm glad they're giving minutes to young guys. I really like uh, Brandon Miller, LaMelo Ball, Trey Mann. Um, I think the Hornets are finally moving towards something better. Playoffs next year I think is a little ambitious, but stranger things have happened, and the truth is stranger than fiction. I, Mm. I probably wouldn't bet on it. I would say the Hornets are probably... 
two years away, if that, um, from being a legit playoff team. I really think we have to see how LaMelo and Brandon Miller uh, get together. And I think the biggest thing is just going to be, it sucks, man. It, it really reminds me of the Washington Wizards. The biggest thing with these young teams that have been in the dregs for so long is just building a culture and getting these guys ready to play defense. You know, I think you need a culture setter like a Mike Brown. Think about how Mike Brown came into Sacramento. Talented team, didn't have a culture. He gave them an identity. He made them really great on offense. And what did that lead to? It led to them giving a ton of effort defensively, and they played really hard. That has to be your idea in Charlotte. You have the talent. It's about getting these guys to buy in, play hard night to night, and really lock in defensively. Uh, they got to reestablish the culture there in Charlotte. If they can get that to happen, I think Charlotte can uh, can get out of this hole that they're in and finally make a playoff push. There's still a ways away. I think that Brandon Miller is obviously awesome, and over the last couple months has just really established that. Well, really last month he's been playing so exceptionally well. Trey Mann I think is a good find because he's a skilled basketball player, and I think that his playmaking has been fun and has been impressive, and you see he's just shifty. He's just a creative ball handler. He's got like that pull-up shot man. making. He's fun, dude. He's fun. I kind of think that he's more fun than he is easy to fit into a lineup. Like, Carson, generally he's nice though he's he, nice he is nice he's always been nice but it's like when you're not going to be a lead guard you got to be the guy who does the little stuff you probably got to be a little bit of a bigger uh, more physical two-way guard and that's just not Trey man but maybe he's just a nice ass sixth man like that's kind of what I thought of you him as a maybe. prospect that's what I can see for him going forward outside of that I know that for Hornets fans winning three games is like winning the freaking Super Bowl and congratulations on that I don't really know where these guys figure into your future outside of Trey. Like, Grant, right, he's he's solid and he's going to help teams that are trying to get over the hump, but that's kind of the spot that I think you want him in. Michich, it's been, like, really fun to see him actually getting some minutes because he's a super skilled passer and he's got, like, that sort of veteran poise, but I think that he's a backup point guard in the league, so... I don't see a lot that's really meaningfully changing in terms of the new guys. And with where the Hornets are at, it's like you're not really at the point where those little depth moves on the margins, getting those vets move the needle. But congratulations on winning three games. That's something. All right. The remaining questions are going to be really not about the NBA or the NFL. So we'll run through those. Noodles asks, who's the first team you're rebuilding on NCAA Football 25, Logan? Uh, I'm going to have to watch gameplay first. I want to get this out there. I am very skeptical about EA Sports putting effort uh, into mm. anything. Mm. Uh, I loved Madden when I was a kid uh, with my whole heart. I started with Madden 2000, playing with my dad on the PS2 from a very young age. I graduated to Madden 06. I've played every Madden for Madden 06 up to the current Madden, and I am, frankly, I have been disappointed and let down by every Madden that has been released since 2013. Uh, EA Sports is a bad company. I do not support them. Uh, I wow. think that they half-ass their game. I think that ESPN NFL 2K5 is better. I, I just have a lot of issues with the gameplay and uh, the predatory uh, microtransactional uh, mm -hmm. things that go down. Yeah in those games there is a clear lack of effort and a clear emphasis on just making money every year that i yeah. just despise from madden so i need to see that it's a great gameplay game before i'm going to purchase it that being said man i love the old college football games and the team that i always played with was uva uva sucks 
in every football game, and I would play quarterback for them. I'm not a rebuild guy. I'm a road to glory guy. So oh, I would interesting. play. I would play quarterback. I would make myself a lefty. Uh, I would be Vanilla Vic, um, really wow, fast, tough. really speedy. Uh, I was like in a consistently. I would just drop back and pass every play. I never handed it off. I'd throw for like four thousand yards. I'd rush for a thousand. I was that's awesome. Ba- I was basically Cam Newton, uh, and I took UVA. I you were Vanilla to, uh, Vic. I was Vanilla Vic, but if I had to get were a player, were you slider? Comp, no, let's be honest. No, were I was you a big a dude. I was, quit, you were big. Okay, I was six five, two twenty five. Oh, I was a wow. tank. Um, yeah, yeah, but I was agile. So if I'm if I'm gonna get the game, if it's a good product, if the gameplay is really solid, I will buy it. I will play it. Um, but I'm taking UVA. I'm gonna play QB, and uh, I'm leading them to the chip. I miss those old college football games, man. I don't know if you played them. They were fun as hell. You don't know if I played them, Logan. They are like my favorite game, dude, because my favorite part of any sports video game is roster building, really. Like, I think that that's the most fun part because the gameplay is always going to be flawed. And of course, like, it's fun, but you play enough 2K and you're like, all right, cool. These certain few things are just broken and it can get repetitive because you're like, oh, well, it turns out in the new 2K games, I haven't played the last couple, but, you know, starting in like, 20 or whatever if you just have a really fast athlete and you sprint down the court you can score 40 points in transition every game and it's like that sucks but also if it works why wouldn't i do it every video game has some little thing like that i really like the old ncaa gameplay but i'm looking for over on my camera roll here dude i from what was the game mode called where you would build it wasn't dynasty was it uh yeah you know it was dynasty it was dynasty Bro, I have so many screenshots of the careers of all of my players. I think from a, a from a specific dynasty that I did with my friend Carvel. Like, it's ridiculous. I have hundreds and hundreds of screenshots just of these dudes and their career stats. I never look at them, but it would be terrifying to me if I didn't have access to them. So that's what I'd be focused on, and I'm rebuilding the Cal Bears. I'm bringing the Cal Bears to glory. And by the way, that asked me, that reminds me, one person asked how I ended up as a Bills and Cal fan. I'm from the Bay Area. My dad went to Cal. That's why I'm a Cal fan. I'm a Bills fan because of my friend Carvel, who I just mentioned. His family, they're big Bills fans, and I always watch football at their house growing up. Boom, two birds, one stone. <laughs> I just wanted to say the reason the gameplay is flawed now is because uh, the game engines that these games are built on, specifically Madden, in the PlayStation 2 era, the Maddens and the old NCAA football games were built on football engines. They were specifically football games, football physics, all about football. And now they run games on first-person shooters uh, engines so the graphics look better. And me personally as a football fan, it's a football game. All the guys have helmets on. I really don't care what they look like under the helmet. If we could sacrifice graphics for gameplay, like literally, I I mean this, like if Madden dropped a remastered version of like any of the old Maddens on the PS2 or any of the college football games, I'd buy that in a heartbeat because the gameplay is fun. And that should be the goal of any game, to make the gameplay fun. Yeah. Recruiting is so fun. But what the hell is recruiting going to be like now with NIL? Like, am I going to have to, like, throw (laughs) it into house? Am I going to have to be like, hey, how do you like this lakeside mansion? I hadn't thought about that, dude. I think we are. I think we're going to have to be shelling out cash, bro. But it's all right. It's still going to be fun. All right, I'm going to solo this one from Yunker Zach. He says he needs the Federer versus Djokovic GOAT debate. I'll be pretty pretty straightforward here. I don't think it's that much of a debate anymore. You can look at basically any metric. Weeks at number one, 
Djokovic is far past Federer now. Slams, he's got 24, still adding to that. Fed has 20. Masters 1000s, he has more. Like, just across the board, all of these accomplishments, he exceeds him. And then I think if you are putting the context in around those, the way in which Djokovic has accrued all of those accomplishments is more impressive because he did it in a tougher era. Like, 2011, when he first ascends the throne and has his all-time great season, his first of several, 2015, I would say he was even better. But he does that when Rafa's coming off of his best year ever. Fed is still very near his peak. Fed racks up a lot of slams in that 2004-07 range where really nobody could challenge him outside of Rafa at the French, who in terms of grass and hard wasn't the player he would become. Novak Djokovic racked up this completely unparalleled uh, resume of accomplishments, beating the best generation in tennis history outside of him, going head-to-head against the two other top three players ever, and Annie Murray, who in any other generation like would have been one of the top two guys, and beating all of them, outplaying all of them against top 10 on any surface. I think he's the greatest all-around player ever when you account for his dominance. I mean, on grass... He absolutely goes toe-to-toe with Fed. On hard, he is the greatest player ever. And on clay, I mean, outside of Borg and Rafa, you could argue he's the greatest player ever. Fed was never dominant like that on clay. So I don't think it's a debate anymore. Logan, you agree, right? Yeah, Novak's the GOAT. He's been the GOAT. I've been telling people he was going to be the GOAT. Now he's got the longevity and the raw accomplishments to justify that. Bro is insane. Flawless by Eat asks, do you guys like One Piece or anime in general? Uh, I've watched one anime. Uh, it was Jujutsu Kaisen. I uh, oh, wow. took that in. Uh, oh yeah, with, with the boy Cars and oh, yeah. uh, our friend group. It was an electric time. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, please put me on with others. Yeah, I'll put you on, buddy. By the way, season two of Kaisen is out, and it is sweeping the globe. Everybody's talking about it. I'm actually not totally caught up. I'm midway through, but that's a good one. I've never watched One Piece. One Piece is just an insane investment it's like a thousand episodes logan you know i don't really have time for that yeah but i have watched several anime attack on titan is my favorite death note was the first i ever saw really gripped me outside of that what have i seen it gripped me bro it It riveted me it captivated me okay can you stop being so filthy for god's sakes for one moment of your rotten little life Mm -mm. so i'm (laughs) i'm an anime enjoyer but not an anime enthusiast, I would say. You know, I'm not just inherently going to be interested in something because it's anime. But if something's really good, I will not restrict myself from it just because it is anime. So there you go. Okay, Carvel asks, who shot the sheriff? Carson. Yeah, all right, fair enough. And last question from Jay Lars. If you guys were to make videos about sports other than football, basketball, WWE, tennis, what would you pick? Dude, I don't know because my areas of expertise don't yeah. uh, All right. go let far me, beyond. Let me rephrase the question for the boy then because he kind of took our answers. I feel like the easier question here is sports other than football and basketball. And then we could say, oh, Logan would do WWE mm-hmm. and I would do tennis. But J. Lars already knows that those would be our answers. And outside of that, I don't think any of our bags go that deep. So I'll rephrase the question. Forget about sports. If you were to make videos about anything other than those topics, what would you pick? I guess I would do like... Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Dr. Pepper is not a bad answer. Probably day in the life or like uh, me Torque hooping. Video reactions. Or, or... 
Hey, Day of those... Life? Hold on. Like, 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 what's that, bro, who, like, sets up cameras everywhere he goes? Oh, no, dude. Those kill me, bro. Those kill me. Day um, in the Life. Wow. So you'd be, you'd be a modern-day vlogger. Something like, I mean, but, like, I wouldn't, I'm going to be honest, dude. Those would bore me. I wouldn't put enough effort into those to really make them high quality. I guess, like, when I go so play pickup. right. I guess I would just do basketball videos of me actually hooping. I guess that's kind of a cop-out because he said not basketball or football. Yeah, but cop-out. Find something else. The only thing that I do consistently enough is hoop. So Why does that it would have to be, be the only content. No, what about things you're passionate about? Why does it have to be you filming yourself going about your day-to-day -day routine? Dude, the thing I'm most passionate about is basketball. All right. The thing I enjoy doing most is playing basketball, so that would probably be what I do videos on. Maybe fishing if I was back in Virginia. We get some fishing content. There we go. That moves the needle. Come on. What's your favorite fish you've ever caught? Ooh, man. This one summer, I worked with my dad out at this house, and they uh, they used to have this army base that they stocked the pond at. Great but white. You caught a great the, white. If the truck had uh, too much fish, they would come out to this one house and they would dump all the fish in there. And so this one summer when I was working with my dad, dude, every time I cast it out, I was basically reeling one in, man. I caught. Yeah. Well, you were juicing. I was. It was a juiced pond, man. Yeah, uh, you were juicing, bro. But That's steroid era numbers. You're never going to get in the hall with that on your resume. I used, uh, I used these lizard bait that you could make dance. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you did. Those are outlawed. Yeah, they're illegal. And then, guess get this: after I caught the fish, I cut it open and I put weights in there to make it like you know, twenty pounds. And then I'd be like, "Dude, I caught this twenty-pound fish today." It was all fake numbers. I juiced them. Dude, that was the funniest thing. The bros who were putting weights in their fish. You saw that, right? I did. Yeah, yeah man. That was insane. I didn't know if you would just come up with that off the dome. And I was gonna say, well, "I've got a story for you, pal." Mine. What would I do videos about? Great question. Movies. And in fact, you know what, Logan? I think I'm going to do an Oscars podcast this year for Nerd Sesh by myself because I don't think you've seen enough of the movies and I don't think you would Definitely be interested. Not. I've seen all of the Best Picture nominees. So I've got a really informed opinion this year. That's so a good answer. Tuned. I would say maybe video games too. Video games are a big passion. I like sports video games, but I was hardcore when I was a kid. So maybe that's an answer too. But uh, basketball is where my heart is at. And then I would do a breakdown of whether or not Warren G. Harding mewed. I thought you were going to do a torque video, though. All right. No. No. Again, you guys we're not having this conversation again. I would love a Carson Torque video. I think that would go hard. All right, guys, that's going to do it for us here today. Sorry that we went a little long on this one, but we wanted to get to as many of your questions as we could. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, there's always more Nerd Sesh content. Follow us across social, TikTok, Instagram, at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. Listen to the pod across audio platforms. Watch the pod on our YouTube channel. Check out our video breakdowns. I just did one on Christoph's Porzingis. That's on our YouTube channel. We're doing a weekly trivia show, the Trivia Gauntlet. So if you love what we do on TikTok, this is more long form stuff. It's vibey as hell. Check that out on our YouTube channel. Check out our merch at thevolume.com. Join our Discord link tree in our bio. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.